World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. I want to welcome you to listen to, invite you to listen to the Sharon Kleiner Hour, The Power of Water, Global Warming, and Your Health. What is the power of water on our earth? It means that if there is no water, there is no life. And that's the reason of the show each week is to understand that the water on our earth is the power for all existence of life, health, and the earth to be there for eternity, to live with us. There's a word called dehydration that lately I have been studying water for 30 years. Dehydration is a word that a lot of people didn't understand that through the years when you said you were having a temperature over 98, you began to dehydrate. It's been confused. You begin to dehydrate the moment you're born. That's your life. The word dehydration means that it's a change and you're, and you're losing water. The molecules in the cells are a water that you're losing every moment of the day. I have talked to doctors even uh, that are very well-known people that didn't understand they were dehydrating and went to the doctor with a symptom and found out they were dehydrating as we all are dehydrating in different levels and degrees of our health. We must drink a lot of water every day, but we need to learn more about why. We're having a change in our mental status, confusion and irritabilities and stress. That's a dehydration symptom. We need to learn that our mouth is dry, our nasal passages are dry, our eyes are dry. That's a dehydration symptom, loss of moisture, loss of all natural water. The concerns we've all had, and as we teach on the show each week, is 1.1 billion people in the world do not have access to safe water or water. 2.6 billion people in the world do not have access to any kind of water. I could, we could go on and on and on. World Water Aid with UNICEF have been guests on our show, the directors, and very concerned that people are not taking serious the water. And our symptoms of our life and our health and global warming, there's a loss of water. We need to understand that the body is dehydrating faster than normal and of any of the past uh, symptoms we've had. We need to learn more. But I have learned that forced air, heating and cooling, insulated windows and walls are causing us from indoor conditions to go outdoors being very dry. We sleep in those conditions. We work in those conditions. So let's think about the education we want to provide to each one of us to remind ourselves each week when we're listening to this show. Our guests each week are people who have left very busy lives to join us, to help educate us. Today we have Dr. Marguerite McDonald, who's a corneal specialist and cataract and refractive eye surgeon and is a consultant uh, on Long Island and a renowned multi-specialty eye care with a group in New York. She's a clinical professor of ophthalmology at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans. And today we're going to discuss uh, a LASIK eye surgery, which she has been with since the beginning of its founding. And uh, I would want to, we're going to learn more about all ages of surgery uh, of LASIK. Our second guest is going to be Jan Rowan, 
with the U.S. Fishery and Wildlife Service and the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River flows from Connecticut through Massachusetts to New Hampshire, and we're going to learn a lot about the U.S. Fishery and Wildlife, which is a nationwide uh, management assistance group learning more about water. We'll listen to our sponsor, Nature Sears Eye Mist for dry eyes, and we'll be right back with Dr. McDonald. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist, just a mist. All-natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Well, we're inviting you to listen to uh, Dr. Marguerite McDonald, a special guest and a friend of mine, She's going to be educating you and I more about LASIK and the health of your eye care. Are you with us, Dr. McDonald? I am indeed. How are you, Sharon? Well, I am fine. It's nice of you to take time uh, to educate us again. I uh, wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background. And, Marguerite, you are so dedicated to 100% of your time to concerns of people's eyes and their health. Tell us a little bit about you. Well, um, I graduated from Columbia University School of Medicine in New York. I did uh, most of my training at um, Cornell and Columbia, and then I finished with a cornea fellowship down at LSU where I joined a team uh, building the first eczema laser, and in 1988 I had the honor of doing the very first laser vision correction procedure in the world. Hmm. And uh, so I've I've been uh, with... LASIK since the very, very beginning, and I've devoted my life to improving it and making it even safer and better, uh, along with other forms of eye surgery and refractive surgery. Um, After Hurricane Katrina, I relocated up north again, and now I'm a clinical professor at NYU and an adjunct clinical professor at Tulane. I still go back to teach, but I'm primarily based on Long Island, and I uh, frequently teach in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You have given your life to the concerns of eyesight. And when I became involved, I was just, I was very surprised, Dr. McDonald, at the lack of education about health and the eyes that have happened. I know when I was younger, the first thing anyone would say to me, my family, my parents, or my grandparents would say, don't sit close to, too close to anything. And when television was invented, they definitely didn't want us sitting close to that bright screen. Um, what are you finding before we get into some of the other types of treatments that are available for corrective eyesight, vision uh, care, but what are some of the things you're finding that people have not learned enough about? Uh, help us with that. Uh, you're correct. There is a, an astonishing lack of knowledge about eye health. People know now that you know smoking is bad for their lungs and their heart and the small vessels in the brain. They know that they should eat low-fat foods and watch their salt intake. The American public knows 
that sort of thing pretty well by now, but they don't know anything about eye health. Even people who have several family members with a serious eye disease like glaucoma do not perceive themselves to be at risk for eye disease. It's really uh, astonishing. There was a recent survey by the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and uh, that's what led the American Academy of Ophthalmology to kick off a campaign, uh, the iSmart campaign. As a matter of fact, if you want to learn a great deal about the five diseases that affect the aging eye, uh, our listeners should go to www.getisMart.org. GetISmart.org. It's just a font of information. Get and it's I smart. GetISmart.org. Mm-hmm. And it goes over the, the five things. You know, the incidence of eye diseases, go, even if you have a, a sterling family history, nobody in your family has any problem that you know of, the incidence of eye disease goes up dramatically at age 40. Mm-hmm. So there's dry eyes, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. There's cataract. There's diabetic changes, there's macular degeneration. You know, there, there are a host, and glaucoma, of course, the incidence of glaucoma goes up at 40. So the American Academy of Ophthalmology feels that everyone should get an annual eye exam by an IMD starting at age 40. Earlier, of course, if you have a, a family history or, or well-known ophthalmic problems. You know, um, we had Dr. Scott Jens on as a guest, and we talked about infancy. And uh, we were just shocked, so surprised at what they were been learning about the baby born and what was not understood uh, about when your baby is born and how you talk to the baby and you look at the baby and the baby's reacting to you from, from that infancy. Um, I had said to him, doctor, I said, you know, something that I had never thought about. But, you know, when we're born and we're, look, we're looking at someone, we're really not understanding we have ears. We probably relate that we're hearing through our eyes. So all of the relationship we're building from infancy is through the eyes with our hearing and our rela- emotions. And he began to teach us about what's happening to that, that people are taking for granted the moment you're born. And from there on, we're not checking the baby's eyes quick enough to see the dilation that the baby is focusing. Um, I think that's where we've got to start, is going back to the infant and start understanding more. And then when they get into school with health education, they need eye education so that people can understand without your vision and being healthy, having healthy vision, uh, he even mentioned it causes a lot of stress. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, some of the best hospitals will send an ophthalmologist through the infant nursery to check the babies within a few hours of birth to look for the really terrible things like eye cancer, retinoblastoma that can kill a baby Mm -hmm. before he or she is six months old. But um, it's really best to take your infant to a pediatric ophthalmologist for a good eye exam you know, as soon as you're able, uh, three to eight weeks, as soon as the baby is um, able to be brought to the doctor because um, eyes turning in, eyes turning out, mm-hmm. cataracts. One out of every 250 live births results in a child that's got a cataract. There are many, many things that can be picked up and treated successfully early mm-hmm. by a pediatric ophthalmologist. And it's less than an hour. It's a quick exam. You're in and out, and, you know, you've done right by your child. Now, this is something that we should really stress as pediatric ophthalmologists because 
uh, he mentioned to uh, Dr. Vet, um, the mention he said, "Well, Sharon, the prisons are full of are uh, the babies that were didn't they didn't understand the anxiety that was happening with vision and unhealthy vision." And he's for them when you're in the womb, your eyes are connected to your brain. And Doctor, you and I, you you brought it up on one of our shows about the eyes are affecting the brain, and people don't realize that the anxiety and exhaustion and our attitudes and many of the symptoms that follow uh, because we're not taking care of our vision. We're not getting the health education that is so important, young enough to understand that don't take for granted that when that eyelid isn't covering the eyes, that's the one organ that's not covered. I said to someone recently, if I came up to you and put a little slice in your chest and opened up the flap of your skin and let the organs breathe, and they look at you so funny, well, I said, remember, the eyes are only covered by the eyelid when your eyes are closed. Your, I mean, your eyelid is closed. And they had never thought about the eye organ as, ex, as exposed to the air from the moment you're born and that eyelid is open and all that comes with dry air. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been learning. I noticed in some of your articles you've been writing that they're learning more about LASIK eye surgery and from the beginning, I know everything always starts out with one direction, and all of a sudden you're learning because there are millions of eyes out there that are having a surgery. What are you learning about the surgery, and what do people need to be educated about? Well, LASIK is you know, laser vision correction. Both iterations of it, LASIK and PRK, are by far the most popular and successful elective surgeries in the history of medicine. In other words, of surgeries that are not medically necessary to save your life or to save your sight, um, elective procedures, these have um, you know, far outstripped any other procedure because the risk-benefit ratio is so excellent. Uh, the trend in LASIK, there are two separate and parallel trends, both of which I'll describe. With LASIK itself, you know, usually uh, for many, many years we've used a high-speed specialized microkeratome, a high-speed oscillating blade to make a very thin flap. We tilt it back, uh, almost like the top on a can of soup. Then the eczema laser is focused on the bed, and after 30 or 40 seconds of painless treatment, the flap is closed and it sticks immediately without sutures. The last uh, 10 years have brought a slow change in that now most flaps are made with a second laser. So LASIK is now done, in most cases, completely with lasers, no blades. So there's still a flap that is created and lifted, but it is made with a solid-state laser. So when the patient goes into the laser suite and lays down on the gurney, the gurney is clicked first under the solid-state laser where the flap is made painlessly, Mm -hmm. and then the gurney is clicked to the second laser, where the eczema laser, where the tissue is removed. And so patients like that. The results are superb. They like knowing that there's no blade, oscillating metal blade on their eye. It's all laser surgery, Mm -hmm. and the results are outstanding. As a matter of fact, the results are so outstanding that about six months ago, NASA uh, announced that it would accept astronauts that had had all laser LASIK. Mm -hmm. 
the now the separate and parallel trend is improvements in PRK. PRK, the original iteration of laser vision correction, um, has no flap whatsoever. There's, uh, it is a completely cut-free, blade-free approach to the surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, there's been a slight delay in the speed of return of vision and slightly more discomfort. LASIK, the return of vision is virtually instantaneous and there's no mm-hmm. pain. Back about 15 years ago, there was a sizable gap between these two procedures as far as speed of return of vision and discomfort, but now that gap has virtually been eliminated. So many people who can't have LASIK for whatever reason or who simply do not want a flap cut in their eye, even with a laser, uh, can turn to photorefractive keratectomy. People see well, even the first day post-op. It does take two or three days for the extremely sharp quality to come in, but um, people are usually driving the first day post-op. They go back to work the first day post-op, even with uh, modern PRK. Mm-hmm. Both forms of laser vision correction have been uh, positively impacted by the advent of wavefront surgery. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Using the same technology that went into building the Hubble telescope, we can now give a customized uh, program to the computer that drives the laser. Instead of typing in your glasses prescription, which is what we did until 1999, now we put in a disk that has thousands of bits of data that were derived by mapping out the optics of each individual patient's eye. Mm-hmm. So Wonderful. Another way, another way to describe this, the most common pair of glasses, uh, the prescription is minus 2.00. There are probably 80 million people in the United States wearing minus 2.00 glasses. If you put them all in the Superdome, they could all swap glasses and see the 2020 line. But light passes through a different pathway in each one of those eyes as light travels back to their retina. If you can map that out and compensate for the unique little optical aberrations in each eye, you can improve on Mother Nature. So you can not only help them get rid of their glasses, you can give them better contrast sensitivity and better night vision without glasses after surgery than they had with glasses before surgery. And we have do that noticed, now. On a have you noticed that there's a lot of people wearing glasses younger younger today than ever? I I I've, I travel a lot, and I at the airports you're sitting around, and I watch, and I watch the at the malls, and pe- the amount of people that are wearing glasses from very young children. There's a reason. What is that and, reason? Yeah, children no longer go out and play. They sit in front of the computer. They no longer climb and swing from trees and, um, and spend a lot of time looking at distance. Mm-hmm. Almost all playing is done indoors in front of the computer now, and intense near work during your growing years induces myopia, induces yeah. nearsightedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now what is the youngest person that you have uh, known that has had LASIK? Well, most of us try not to operate on people who are still growing because you'll have to enhance them, operate again mm-hmm. a short time later. So most of us try to wait until people are finished with school, whether that's high school, college, whatever their last year of school is because intense reading induces nearsightedness. Mm-hmm. But we have all made exceptions. I've operated on some 15-year-olds because they were trying to get into the SEALs or, or the, uh, excuse me, the Sentinel or... Um, you know, some, one of the elite Army, Navy, or Marine Corps 
schools, and they had to pass their entrance exam at 16, and, you know, that has worked out very, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the branches of the armed forces accept LASIK now. The only disadvantage to doing it earlier is that you might have to touch it up later. Again. Mm-hmm. 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 Not a now, big deal. what is happening? Um, I know that was excellent education um, for everyone. Uh, what are you finding out with the dry eye problems, the symptoms that we all have dry eyes? Somebody said to me not long ago, well, I've never had dry eyes. And I looked at them and I uh, took nature series eye mist and I missed at them. And they said, oh, my gosh, I felt unbelievable. And I said, everybody has a dry eye with nature. Um, what are you finding with dry eye and LASIK? Uh, what are some of the symptoms that our um, listeners need to think about? Well, you're correct. You know, um, everybody gets drier with the passage of time. Women are drier than men because of hormonal changes. But modern life and all the forced air and all the staring at computer screens, um, everyone gets a situational dry eye while using a computer. The normal blink rate of 20 times a minute drops to three times a minute when you're looking at a computer screen. So even healthy teenagers will get a situational dry eye. But dry eye is even more prevalent in people coming for LASIK surgery because most people have failed contact lenses when they come to me for LASIK. What's the number one reason to have trouble with your contacts? Dry eyes. Mm -hmm. So when somebody comes to me, uh, I'll say, when was the last time you had contacts in? Four years ago. Why did you stop wearing contacts? They burned. Uh, My Mm -hmm. eyes were red. I couldn't tolerate them. And you take a history, and you know what you're going to see before you even examine them. You're going to see very dry eyes. On the other hand, treating dry eyes in advance can take someone who is a fairly poor candidate for LASIK surgery, and you can make them an excellent candidate if you treat them in advance. I wondered about that. I'm going to talk about that, and we're going to listen to our sponsor, and let's talk about that, because I've had a lot of people ask me those, uh, ask about that. Uh, what about if I'm not a candidate? Uh, we're going to listen to our sponsor, and we'll come back, and we'll discuss that one. That is a good one. Uh, we're going to listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist. Just a mist. All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Dr. McDonald, I want to ask you, I've had a lot of people ask me, I was doing a lot of television shows in the country, and there was a beautiful host, Anchor, who said she had been wearing contact lenses for so long, and it it had damaged her eye, and she didn't in time think about the damage in the future, because she needed to go on air, and she didn't want to wear glasses, and what are you finding? Uh, are a lot of people that wore, con- wore contacts for so long, are they candidates for LASIK eye surgery? 
Most of them are. There are a few very, very, very rare souls who have uh, contact lens warpage syndrome. They uh, take their contacts out, and everybody gets some temporary molding of the eyeball. It's, contacts, no matter how well they're fit, are like having a girdle on your eyeball, and as soon as you take them off, the cornea relaxes back to its natural shape. Mm-hmm. But some people don't relax back. It's exceedingly rare, and they're left with slightly blurry vision even with glasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's so rare that even in a corneal practice, I see a case every few years. But with today's technology, laser vision correction can correct those people now. Using the wavefront technology I described, based on the Hubble telescope, we can help those people now to see sharp and crisp again without glasses. Before they have decide to have the laser surgery, what are they doing that maybe they should be thinking about how to take better care of their eyes if they're wearing contact lenses? What are some of the mistakes that uh, many are t- taking for granted or not taking the time, let's say, let's be fair, not taking enough time to take better care of their eyes if they're going to be wearing contacts every day? What are the mistakes they're making, do you think? Well, we see a lot of people who abuse contacts. If they're, if they're supposed to throw them away after two weeks, mm-hmm. they decide to save money and wear them for we three weeks or five weeks or six mm-hmm. weeks. And the contacts, uh, they think they're cleaning them. They think they're rubbing them and cleaning them. But actually, the contact lenses are becoming loaded with calcium and protein, which can really damage and irritate the eyes. And probably bacteria because of that. Oh, uh, we see many infected corneal ulcers mm-hmm. from contact lens abuse. Mm-hmm. Or people who were supposed to take them out at night who sleep in them uh, when they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see people who spit on their contacts. Carrying the tissues that they don't even recognize it's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, contact lens abuse is unfortunately widespread. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the best things for teenagers who tend to be the worst abusers are the daily disposable contacts. You put them in in the morning, and then you throw them straight into the trash can at night mm-hmm. so the teenager doesn't have to uh, be concerned with cases and cleanliness and solutions. And that's, that's a great one, especially for people, adults, who just wear them occasionally for parties or whatever. But it's wonderful for anybody who's in too big of a hurry to take good care of their, their contacts. Now, who does the fitting of the contacts? Does the ophthalmologist, the optometrist, or does the optician uh, do the final fitting? Ophthalmologists and optometrists both fit contact lenses. Okay, okay. and so the optician... What is their role? We had an optician, a wonderful optician on as a guest um, in the past, and she was mentioning where a lot of people, when they go to visit the optician, they don't realize how important that you need to ask a lot of questions of your optician. But when a person's being fit with the contact lenses, what are some of the questions that they should be asking so that they understand more about how serious it is? I like what you said, putting a girdle over the eye. That's well, a good just, common sense description. Well, just to, to clarify, opticians uh, will take a glasses prescription from an ophthalmologist or an optometrist and make the glasses. A good optician will guide you on frame selection, something that fits your face and your occupation and your hobbies and may guide you uh, listening to your lifestyle as to whether or not you want transitions, you know, glasses that get dark in the sun and then get mm-hmm. light again, clear again as you reenter uh, your office building. Um, 
many, many people who are over 40 get progressives, so invisible line bifocals that will help you see at book distance, computer, and, and um, infinity without uh, the telltale line indicating mm-hmm. that it's a bifocal. Mm-hmm. So a, a good optician can really guide you in that way. Opticians can also sell contacts, but they don't fit the contacts. They can take the prescription from an ophthalmologist or an optometrist and pull the boxes of soft lenses and dispense them. To now, Marguerite, I'm going to ask you real uh, There's something. Uh, there's a lot of, lo- of locations that are people are going to buy less expensive contact lenses. And what are the questions they have to make sure, if there is an optician doing it, what is the uh, question they need to make sure to be careful? Because people are taking so for granted that some of these people are highly qualified when there may be, I, I hate to put a question mark in people's minds, but they should be asking a lot of questions. Is there usually an optometrist around? So that the optometrist makes the selection, or does are there places where the optician is making the selection? Well, for contact lenses, once you've been fit by an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, and you have your prescription in your hand, and they're the only ones that can do that, right? And you, you should then go to a mom and pop store, a small place where service is number one, where they get to know you and. Um, you know, if you call them just as they're closing and you say you're going on vacation and you need another box of your contact lenses, they'll stay open and sell them to you. Mm-hmm. You pay for that kind of service. Mm-hmm. Or you can call up 1-800-CONTACTS or Contact Lens Express, and you mm-hmm. can get a really cheap price. However, there's no service. So, in other words, if you say, I know I bought a one-year supply of my contacts, but my doctor says my prescription has changed. Can I trade you back my old ones for some new ones? They might not do that for you. So if you pay a little more and you go to a local optician or optometrist who sells contacts, you might pay just a little bit more, but... Um, go for a get, healthier service. In other words, the health, your health of your eyes are more important than you getting a discount on your product. Well, that's especially when I, when I tell uh, adults, I say, you know, your prescription has been stable for a few years. It's totally mm-hmm. okay to go to these big discounters, mm-hmm. but your 17-year-old, don't buy a year's supply of this from 1-800-LENS-EXPRESS because his prescription may change in two months. It probably will, and then you'll be stuck with a bunch of contacts that are the wrong, the wrong uh, power. So, you know, it's, it, it's totally okay to use those. Just check what the policies are uh, before you put your order in. Let's talk now before we're completed about the word dry eye, um, the tear film. Uh, describe to our listeners the f- function of the tear film in the eye. A lot of people don't even know what the word tear film is, doctor. The tear film is the interface between the eye and the environment. It is the final refracting surface. It's, in other words, the surface that gives you clear, crisp vision. The tear film, besides giving you great optics, it protects the eye. It protects the eye from infection. Uh, The tear film is loaded with all sorts of antibodies and chemicals that are designed to protect the eye from infection from uh, not only viruses but bacteria and uh, parasites. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also uh, leads to normal hydration of the ocular tissues. If the surface tissues are not hydrated to a certain degree, they cannot function. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, if the surface cells of the eye are dehydrated, they will actually slough off, mm-hmm. and then the eye will become infected and vision can be lost. 
Mm-hmm. And if you begin to rub your eyes, you can tear the tissues. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, describe to us how important that moisture level is to the eyes, because a lot of people have not understood through the years that I have started uh, doing what I do, uh, that how important the moisture in the eye is. Um, they really take it for granted uh, that the the nature of if you're drinking a lot of water, that it'll all come together, not understanding that the air has to have moisture. It cannot be too dry. And because there's no two eyes alike, and that's the other one, Doctor, a lot of people don't know there are no two eyes alike, no two complexions alike, and no two fingerprints. That's the dehydration of each one of us. Um, what are you finding about dry eye? Um, well, every five about- seconds somebody is going blind on this earth. And well, for whatever, all the reasons that we all can use common sense. But how serious is dry eye? It is the number one most common problem that we see in the office, and it has a profound impact on vision and also on quality of life. If your eyes are red and burning all the time and you have fluctuating vision, if you have stinging, uh, you know, many people with dry eyes are in danger of losing their jobs because it looks as if they're they're drunk or they're on drugs. Mm-hmm. So besides the aesthetic uh, issues with dull, glazed, red, puffy eyes. And getting uh, drowsy. Your job, you your get job can be on the line yeah. Yeah. <laughs> besides the other health issues. We, I have treated um, several uh, anchors and news, newsmen, you know, uh, weather people, etc., uh, on local, local and national television whose jobs are on the line and all they have is untreated dry eye, but mm-hmm. the station manager thinks that they have an alcohol or drug problem. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, beside, aside from all those issues, aesthetic and quality of life issues. And sitting at a computer, you can issue. imagine what the employers are thinking because they're getting drowsy and wanting to sleep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When your eyes are dry, they shut, and mm-hmm. you cannot read as long. You, you can't stay more. up as late. You can't go to parties. You can't be near. You can't step outside and watch your grandson play football. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't go to a tennis match. The tiniest bit of environmental insult uh, bothers you. Everything about modern life is contributing to dryness. Uh, all the boomers are now on several medications, most of them. They're on cholesterol-lowering drugs, which make you drier, heartbeat-regulating drugs, uh, antihypertensive. Too much sugar. I mean, there's just, there's just uh, everything about our lives, computer use, forced air, too much time uh, indoors, Blasting the car air conditioner at our faces. Everything about our lives now tends to dry us out. Before we say goodbye, um, and this has just been a great amount of information, tell us a little bit about what you've been learning. You've mentioned to me before that you've been involved with in China uh, at the Ophthalmology Academy in Beijing. Tell us about what you've been learning about the Asian eye. Uh, the Asian eye ha- is, uh, if you take 10 steps back, Asian eyes are very, very, very similar to uh, Caucasian eyes mm-hmm. uh, or eyes from uh, African Americans or any other race. Uh, there is less cornea exposed mm-hmm. because of the almond shape. There's less area that's exposed. Mm-hmm. The corneas are slightly thinner than ours. Their um, endothelial cell count, that's the number of cells they have on the back surface, is a little higher uh, than ours. 
but uh, they they suffer tremendously in China from the pollution. The pollution is a major, major problem there, Mm -hmm. causing burning, redness, stinging, uh, a host of respiratory problems, of course. But if we confine ourselves just to the eyes, red, puffy, bleary eyes with fluctuating vision, it's a big problem, and our Olympians are suffering right now, as you may have read in the newspapers. Yes, we are. Uh, yeah, it is concerning. In fact, um, uh, I, 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 we are going to be there here soon. In fact, we just opened up an office there uh, recently, and uh, the concerns that we're going to be learning more about is what is the pollution causing outdoors, but also they're going indoors with a lot of pollution on their clothing and skin and, and what is happening. But uh, I was wondering what you had learned. I'm going to, I want to thank you for joining us again. You were, you've, I know you're so busy, but what an education. And let's hope that we can get reach out to people with younger infants. And, and as people age, they learn more about taking better care of their eyes and what they need to do. LASIK is the future. Uh, if we can learn that people can take better care of their eyes and, and if they're wearing contacts, remember they may they need to remind themselves they might want LASIK someday. And if they're not taking good care of their eyes wearing the contacts, doctor, they're not maybe going to be able to have the LASIK. Well, you know, I don't want to end on a, a down note because dry eye is diagnosable and easily treatable now. And mm-hmm. if our listeners go to their IMD and get uh, an eye exam, this can be easily treated, mm-hmm. and uh, you can live a wonderful life with nice, white, bright eyes, mm-hmm. without fluctuating vision, without stinging, and you might even uh, become a, a very good LASIK candidate if that's what you wish, or yeah, a contact lens candidate. Exciting future. Well, thank you for all your time. You're welcome. We Sharon. hope you thank have a you. nice day. It was very educational. I really enjoyed it again. Thanks. Bye-bye thank now. you. Have a nice day. You too. Well, I hope you learned as much as I do every time we have Dr. McDonald on. Her dedication, her commitment, her mission is better health of your eyes. And as you heard, she's one of the first people to ever perform LASIK eye surgery. It's the future of our lives. I do need to mention, though, anybody wearing contact lenses, please take care of your eyes. Do everything the doctor has said and the directions have said how you wear your contacts because you may want to live a healthier life. You may be sitting at a computer. Your occupational health is important to your everyday going and earning a living. Uh, vision as a truck driver, uh, as a, a, any, anywhere you go, anything you do, it's your vision. If you're wearing, if you're riding a motorcycle, what if your eyes are having a dry eye? You need to understand that the nature of the dry eye is lack of all natural moisture. Moisture is naturally missing from the eye. And Nature's Tears Eye Mist, our sponsor, has the secret to that benefit. Well, listen to our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Jan Rowan. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Discover the secret of Nature's Tears Eye Mist, an entirely different approach to eye care without eye drops. When your tear film is dry, your eyes feel dry. Nature's Tears Eye Mist naturally supplements the tear film with Biologic Aqua Absolute Premium Standard Grade of pure, all-natural water. Nature's Tears Eye Mist. Just a mist. 
All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. We want to welcome you back to uh, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, The Power of Water, Global Warming in Your Health. Jan, are you with us? I am. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited. I was reading all of the information about the Connecticut River uh, through Connecticut and Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And I want our listeners to know the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, Management Assistance Program is made up of 64 field offices nationwide, and you're one. That's Tell right. us a little bit about who you are and how you got started with uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Well, I'm a fish biologist. I started in this job uh, about a dozen years ago, and my job is to help restore migratory fish to the Connecticut River, mm-hmm. and that involves working with the four states. I think you mentioned three of them, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And Vermont. Okay. And Vermont, because the river runs between New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a 400-mile-long river. It goes all the way up to Canada. It's, oh. Yeah. Now, where does it originate at? Does it originate in Canada? In fact, if you walk the trail to get to the very first uh, Connecticut lake, you got one foot in Canada and one foot in the U.S. Yep. That's, that's the origination of it. Yep. The headwater. That runs all the way down to Long Island Sound then. Called Headwater. Well, I bet it's gorgeous then. It is a beautiful river. Oh, I know. I was reading your information. I was just fascinated. Um, Jan, I'm sitting here in southern Oregon on the Rogue River. Have you ever heard of the Rogue River? I have. You have? That's a nice river. Oh, it's a beautiful river. In fact, mm-hmm. our campus is right, uh, it's right out in front of us. And uh, so I've understood the, the Rogue forever and the valley here. Tell us a little bit about the Connecticut River that you're doing. Now, we know it originates the headwaters up in Canada, and it comes down through Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, into Connecticut. Now, where does it go from there? Well, it runs into Long Island Sound. Okay. And then from there on out into the Atlantic. Okay. Okay. And very fresh water. Very fresh water. Yeah. Now, what's the depth of the, of the river? Ooh, that's a trick question. Now, well, the reason I ask that is how it's flowing through the rocks. Is it coming, uh, is it very deep in some places, or it usually is it more shallow of a river? Is it wide? What's it, how do we vision it? Well, it's an interesting river. Um, we start off in, at fairly high elevation, mm-hmm. and as it runs down towards Long Island Sound, it sort of flattens out. Okay. In fact, uh, this is one of one of very few large rivers on the East Coast with no major city at the mouth. And the reason there's no major city is because it's very braided and shallow at the end. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah, about the rocks and how it's filtering itself. Right, but if you get into the headwaters, it's still very rocky and steep in most cases. Uh huh. The water quality is very high there, mm-hmm. and so our program focuses largely uh, on Atlantic salmon, okay, and brook trout. Okay. They like very clean, cool water, mm-hmm. and we find that in the headwaters where their habitat is, their nursery and spawning habitat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is that is the one species, salmon, that sort of unites all of the program partners. Oh, explain. Because the fish that. travels from the ocean all the way upstream as far as it can reach into the 
um, tributaries. Now, explain that, though. Uh, you said uh, puts, uh, forms a program partner. What does that mean for our listeners that are listening about fish? Well, in, in the river, we have over 140 species of fish. 140? Right. But the program is focusing on migratory fish. So those are fish like Atlantic salmon, um, American shad, blueback herring, mm-hmm. alewife, sea lamprey, mm-hmm. uh, American eels, short-nosed sturgeon, things like that. Uh-huh. And we spend a lot of time on salmon because if whatever we do for salmon stretches from the mouth all the way into the headwaters. Okay, and it's and good, generally for, it good for the, the salmon and good for all. What's that? What's good for the salmon is good for all the fish. Exactly. Okay. Okay. And there's a lot to do because we have over 2 million people living here. Uh-huh. They're changing the watershed daily. Uh-huh. There are thousands of dams and a magnitude more of culverts. Uh-huh. And every time you put in a dam or a culvert or a road near a river, you alter the river. Mm-hmm. And if you alter the river for fish, ultimately you're going to alter it for us because we use it for water supplies. We use it for mm-hmm. boating and recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you're finding out that uh, on the dams, and there was a time when they said the fish couldn't get up the dams, but they've learned how to get the fish up the dams. Explain that to uh, educate our listeners about when a fish is coming along, there's the dam, how does the fish get over that dam to move on? Well, actually, our program goes way back in history. Uh-huh. They built the first dam all the way across the river in 1798. 1798? Right. Before that, they dammed up a lot of the tributaries for mill power. Uh-huh. And once they dammed the whole main stem of the river, uh, within, you know, within 10 years of that, we lost all the salmon. They went oh. extinct. Oh. So... And, and most of the other species declined, too, because they couldn't get to the habit, habitat where they needed to spawn mm-hmm. for their young to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the mid-1800s, the same players, these were the state directors or, or their equivalents in Massachusetts for the natural resource agencies in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont, and, and ultimately what became the Fish and Wildlife Service got together and decided that they could restore the fish. They thought it was important. Kids needed fish to have strong teeth, and they used really weird explanations. Um, to justify a salmon and a, and a fish restoration program back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they started putting in fishways. Mm-hmm. They didn't work very well because they didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they started stocking the river with fish, growing them in a hatchery and putting them out there. Now, did and they that got work? results. And it resulted in and finally figuring out what to do. Yeah, it was a slow process. Uh-huh. But as soon as they got good results, the state of Connecticut repealed their harvest regulations. Mm-hmm. And the states that were further north said they didn't want to play anymore and quit. Oh. So even though we saw fish coming back in the 1890s, the program was concluded. Uh, now, are there very many fish hatcheries left? Well, what happened was we then went on to pollute the river like no tomorrow. Yeah. And we dammed it further. We did that because of hurricanes that flooded the area and, mm-hmm. and because we wanted power and, you know, a host of other aesthetic and irrigation. Um, but, but then, you know, long late 60s, uh, early 70s, the Clean Water Act was put into place, and they began to clean the river up, mm-hmm. began to clean the tributaries up. Mm-hmm. And those same players that tried to restore the fish in the 1800s got together again and decided they could maybe give it another go. And do fish hatcheries again. Yeah, so they started again. They converted things like bass hatcheries and trout hatcheries, and they started mm-hmm. growing salmon again. Mm-hmm. And we got our first fish back in 1974. Mm-hmm. We started building fish passage at the dams. Now we knew how to do it because they were doing it on the West Coast. Uh-huh. And so we built them for the fish that was most numerous, which was an American shad. Mm-hmm. 
but luckily salmon can pass or the shad can pass. Now, as a species, there's something we should ask you, and I hope you being a biologist, you might be able to answer this. As a species, how important is the fish to not become extinct? As a species. How important is it to not become extinct? Yes. Well, the thing is, what we don't understand in this world is how well connected we are to everything else. Exactly. And, for instance, we know that some of these migratory species of fish are sort of like highways for different animals. Uh-huh. Uh, freshwater clams have different life stages that don't look like clams. Uh-huh. And when they're in these sort of neophyte life stages, they actually clamp onto the gills of fish, uh-huh. and they ride upstream on the fish. Oh, um, I never knew that. Huh. And, and when they move upstream a little further, they, they fall off? Because it's getting colder or warmer? You know, I'm not sure what the cue is to make them fall off. Maybe it I is a temperature see. thing. Um, okay. But they'll fall to the bottom, and they'll grow into the freshwater clam that we usually think of as a, you know, as a clam. Okay. okay. Uh, so if that fish isn't there, then the freshwater mussels can't spread out, and they get too crowded. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have filtration in the river evenly spread out. Okay. So the water quality goes down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nature's plan. Yeah, I mean, and that's just one example. Uh-huh. All these other things are linked. If you, if, you don't have, if you don't have a lot of fish biomass in a river... Mm-hmm. Then fish like striped bass, which may grow to be a 30 or 40 pound fish, mm-hmm. will gobble up everything that comes down. I see. So the food web gets out of kilter and the populations get out of kilter and it's, mm-hmm. and it's tough to keep them in balance if, if things aren't sort of the way they were set up biologically. Yes, yes. The earth has a plan. The earth has a plan. And uh, you know the name of the show is The Power of Water. Jan. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, I well for me with fish. I am the most boring person in the world. I don't even want to talk about water because <laughs> I know without the water, we couldn't have the species to do what an Earth plan is. We'd become uh, a desert like what they think Mars is. Yeah, how about it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to hang on to the water forever here. Um, tell us a little bit more what you've been learning now about the Connecticut River that, that you've wanted people to learn more about. Well, there's lots of really cool things that are happening here. We do cryopreservation of Atlantic salmon milt, for instance, the sperm of the fish. Uh-huh. We're doing that to preserve their genetics. Okay. In order to have salmon back in this river, we had to go to Maine and import fish. We went to other places, too, but have, the fish from you the just said something. River. Sand back in the river? Yeah. What so did we reintroduced the population. Built in mud? You lost your sand? Uh, I'm sorry? You said you had to bring sand back oh, in. Oh, no, salmon. Oh, salmon. salmon. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, we got plenty of sand. Oh, I was following you, but I lost. Okay, I, that's my fault. So if, to have salmon back in the river. Okay, we're going forward now. <laughs> so we, brought, we actually imported fish. Uh-huh. And, but our, our river is very different here. It's a 400-mile-long river at the southern extent of its, the fish's range. Now, is that one of the longest rivers in our country? Absolutely. I was going to say it sounded... It's certainly one of the longest. It is the longest one in New England. Okay. Uh, but then the fish had to adapt genetically, which is a slow process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's sort of frustrating because people are used to having immediate results nowadays. Oh, that's the sad part about our living, (laughs) especially in America. I'm all American, but we are always in a hurry. (laughs) Right. And with water, you have to be slow, don't you? Oh, yeah. You have to take it with patience. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. 
<laughs> so anyway, um, it keeps flowing, Jan, but we, we need to flow. In fact, there's the patience. Remember, life flows. <laughs> but it does work, and our fish are adapting. We can actually show that they are changing. Uh-huh. And we think that means they're changing to fit our river. Uh-huh. And if that's true then we pulled off something pretty great. Now, what is happening to the vegetation along the river? Uh, are you able to, are, are you staying healthy? No. We do have problems with invasive species like water chestnut. Okay. Milfoil. We just found a brand new one last year called rock snot. What's it called? Rock snot. Oh, my goodness. Who named that one? I don't know, but it's pretty good. Um, it's a diatom. Uh-huh. It grows like uh, um, algae. It looks like algae, except it feels like wet socks. Okay. Not slippery at all. Uh-huh. Not snotty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's kind of unsightly. We don't know if that's going to impact the habitat for fish or not. I need to tell you on, a, on that one. At one time, there's a beautiful waterfall here in the southern Oregon in the Grants Pascalese area that uh, it's, it's gorgeous, uh, it comes into a creek that is absolutely gorgeous, and they called it Skunk Creek. And I told the U.S. Forest Service, I'm going to call it anything else but Skunk Creek, so get ready. <laughs> if they see a little another name on the map, it's I came in. And I <laughs> but these names, my goodness. <laughs> Sometimes they're misnomers, but, you know, the snot part is sort of true. You don't want to be around it. Yeah, maybe that is, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Some kid who named it, not us big people. <laughs> so uh, then now with the Connecticut River, is it a, a lot of recreation, I bet? Yeah, there is a lot of recreation. In fact, that's the funny thing you say that because, in fact, we think the rock snot is being spread by anglers. Uh-huh. They only have to have one diatom stuck to their boot, uh-huh. and it only has to stay damp, and they can transfer it. Uh-huh. Oh, I see. Um, so do you have a lot of uh, lodges and different recreation places for people to go before we close? Well, yeah, there are. In fact, the best time to come to the river, I think, is at the end of May. Mm-hmm. That's when the fish come back. Mm-hmm. And at the dams, we have fish windows. Oh. People can actually go and watch the fish swim by. Oh, my. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's like going to a national aquarium, oh, but yeah. better. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And, of well, course, that, you know, any and kind of boating. Now, where would they go on the web to say, let's say our listeners worldwide, and they're listening, and, and they come in and want to learn more about the Connecticut River. Are there, where do they go on the website if they wanted to come and be a tourist and, and stay at lodges? And Boy, there's lots of places if you look up Connecticut River. If you want to know about the fish, I can give you my website. Okay, well, let's get that one. It is www.fws, like Fish and Wildlife Service, mm-hmm. .gov. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, is that correct? And I never give that out. It's like my own home phone number. Oh, we can put it up on the web for you, too. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah. That's kind of embarrassing. No, no, it's okay. Well, we'll have birthday. to go. Our time is over. But, Jan, I enjoyed every minute of this, and I'm sure all of our listeners did, too. And everyone, go and look up the Connecticut River in the United States and the New England area. You're going to really be fascinated. And, Jan, you were a wonderful guest. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Tell everyone I said hello. Okay. Have a nice day. Earth does have a secret. I've told you that Earth's secret is the spirit of your life is that precious. Embrace your life every precious moment. Earth is whispering. Never say goodbye. Have a nice day. 
The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. 